Well, friends, we are at the end of the book of James. We have spent 12 weeks on this, and I am super excited to have gotten here. But you know, it's interesting about James. He is not quite as eloquent as Paul is. If you're familiar with the Pauline letters, Paul gets into the letter and, and he's like, and I love you, and I'm praying for you, and I want you to do well and be well. And James just comes to like a crash landing. There's, there's no flowery ending to the book of James. And he packs in a whole bunch of information in seven short verses that we're going to try to run through this morning. So if you will pray, for, pray with me, we will study the word. Gracious God, we thank you for this good opportunity. Help us do something good with it. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, let's be honest about this. How many of you have ever sat down with great anticipation to put something together. And you kind of lay out all of the parts, right? You look at all the parts, and you get the instruction manual, and you make sure that all the parts are accounted for, and, and you, you set out on this uh, with great joy and anticipation of what the final product is going to be. But then you get about five steps in, and you realize that something's not quite right. It's not bad. It's not bad. Like, we're close. We're in the ballpark. But something, like, we, we missed the screw or we didn't quite line something up. And what you do when, when this happens, and I know this is true because this is what we all do, you spend a few minutes, you kind of look at the instruction manual, you go back, you kind of put your pieces together, you try to course correct, but then you decide, ah, close enough, close enough, and you move on. So when and if you get to the end, if is always a big one, what you have created does look vaguely similar to what was on the front of the instruction manual. And, and you decide, well, you know, it's, it's functional. It can be used. So you just take a deep breath and kind of go with it. All of us will reach a point where there's only so much information and instruction that we can carry at one time. And for the last 12 weeks, we've, we've been working our way through the book of James, and James is just one set of instruction and teaching after another. It just keeps coming and coming and coming. James, as we all know now very well, is Jesus's little brother. He is the pastor of the early church in Jerusalem. And in one very short book, he has tried to describe for all of us what the church is supposed to look like, what that finished product of the church is supposed to look like. He wrote this feeling that his time on earth was coming to a close, and so he penned a letter to the church and, and to the surrounding churches to give them a vision for if we were going to sit down, all of us right now, and pull out all the pieces, what we would need to build a healthy, vibrant church of Jesus Christ. And it's a solid vision. A congregation under the influence of James would be committed to sharing each other's burdens and joys. That's something that we try to do very well here. In previous chapters, James envisions a community where class and poverty do not divide disciples, and he applies that same logic to grief and illness and sin. If one member of the church is sick, then the congregation as a whole is weaker. And anyone who is afflicted should feel confident to ask, from, ask for help from their neighbors. And the congregation's leaders will pray on their behalf. 
He's talked about giving generously and living abundantly and sharing the good news of the gospel to the ends of the earth. It's a lot. It's a lot of information. That's why it took us 12 weeks to do it. It's a lot of information just to process, much less put into practice. And all churches, all churches have moments where they've skipped a step or they didn't quite get it right or they just wandered off the path completely. So here at the end of the letter, James writes out some very clear, very simple instructions trying to bring everybody back in in an attempt to paint a picture of what the church should generally look and be like. And it can only really be understood in light of the whole rest of James. Because in this closing section, James puts out these very forthright instructions. Instructions, though, that, that without some background to them, to, to a person who's not familiar with what's going on, would seem ludicrous, if not totally insane. So are any among you suffering? They should pray, says James. Are any cheerful? They should sing songs of praise. Now, that seems kind of common sense to us, but imagine that, that you hadn't heard any of the rest of James. Even imagine that you're brand new to the faith, that you haven't even haven't gotten to the starting line yet. How would you feel if somebody just walked up to you and said, oh, you're suffering? Let me pray for you. Why? Why would somebody who is completely unfamiliar with God and who God is, full of mercy and grace, why would they pray in their suffering? It seems obvious to us, but but we've heard about the character of God. We've, we've seen the testimony of Jesus' little brother. We, we get that. James is teaching us a super important lesson here. Often, the go-to response for Christians in times of discomfort is, I'll be praying for you. And I've talked about this before. I did my, my pastoral clinical residency at Scottish Rite Children's Hospital in Atlanta, by far one of the most terrifying things that I've ever done. And one of the greatest missed opportunities in ministry came one afternoon when I walked into the room of a little girl about eight or nine years old. And I don't remember what her exact medical diagnosis was, but her father explained to me that every time she, she breathed, it was like her lungs were shredding apart. And she was in a great deal of pain, and if things did not improve very soon, then his daughter was going to die. And I was so uncomfortable in that situation because I knew that there was nothing that I could do in that moment to change everything around and not knowing what to do I fell back on old faithful and I said well I'll I'll be praying for you and I meant it I meant it I, I absolutely intended to pray for them and most times that that'll get us off the hook but but not this particular time because that father looked at me and he just had disdain and rage in his eyes. Because in that bed was not just some kid, that was his kid. That was his baby girl, one of the great loves of his life. And here comes this strange, young, awkward, wannabe pastor right into the room, and she just announces she's going to pray for them, and all of a sudden it's just magically going to be better. And so this man just looked at me, and finally what he said was, do whatever the hell you want. It's not like your God even knows that we're here. Well, that man taught me, and James already knew, that, that if we don't know God to begin with, 
If we do not have a grasp, a faith in the character of God, then praying is an empty gesture. Because this man was right. He didn't know God. He did not know the faithfulness of God. He had no idea how precious he was, how precious his daughter was to the heart of God. He did not know of God's sacrifice or unending love, so he could not fathom, he could not process why I'd want to pray for him. For that reason, James writes this letter as one who has a first-hand experience of Jesus Christ. Few people who have walked the earth knew Jesus better than James, so he wrote with some integrity and authority. And if he had kicked off his letter here in verse 13, it wouldn't have made sense to the early church because the early church was just starting to come to grips with Jesus. They were just starting to get to that place where they understood the character and nature of a saving and redeeming God. So by the time we get to this point in the letter, we need to be reading it as believers who are on the precipice of moving towards action. Are any of among you sick? They should call for the elders of the church and have them pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of the faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise them up and anyone who has committed sins will be forgiven. What James is doing here is he's fostering a community that trusts each other, that, that seeks out one another's welfare and lifts one another up. These, again, are things that we try to do here in this place. A James church is a church where the elders are actively involved in the work of pastoral care. Now, our church has nine ruling elders, but there are countless more folks in our congregation who have been previously ordained and called to the ministry of elders. And when we, when we call people to be elders, we tell them that you are an elder for life. Just because you're not ruling on session at any given moment doesn't mean that you have been excused from the ministry of the elders. And we take that calling very, very seriously because elders are people who have demonstrated a deep faith and a vibrant faith. They love the Lord. They can testify to his mercy and love. And there are elders in this congregation that can pray like nobody's business. It's interesting that, that James lifts up the importance of the prayers of the elders because long before I was a pastor, I was like so many of you, I was a church member. And my church was just a little country church in a small town, and in small towns, word travels fast. I don't know if you are aware of that. I'm sure it doesn't happen here in Bradenton. But the word was that unless the senior pastor showed up at the hospital, it wasn't an official visit of the church. What an incredible, incredible loss. If I, if I had ever ended up in the hospital back in those days, I would have jumped out of my skin if my pastor had showed up. I would have been so afraid, not that I was going to die from whatever malady had put me in the hospital, but that I was going to die of old age just waiting for him to finish one of his very lengthy, very wordy prayers. Now, if you had given me any one of the elders from that church... I would have felt so much better, so much more comforted. God gives every one of us special, special gifts and callings, and among the most precious callings is a gift of pastoral care and prayer. And there are elders in this place who are blessed beyond belief with these gifts. So if you ever find yourself in the hospital, 
and you look up one day and you don't see that it's my face and you don't see that it's Pastor Sung's face in front of you, if you look up and, and you see Steve Carmine or, or Diane Ingram or Sue Seatsma or Darcy Radka or Dan Brockman, I want to assure you, I want to assure you that God has chosen his absolute very, very, very best for you. And I say that with authority as one who's been on the receiving end of their prayers. Do you ever wonder who pastors pastors? Right? Like what happens when the pastor goes into the hospital? What pastor is coming to see them? It's the elders of the church. That's the A-team. And I would take any of them, any of them, over any highly trained, certifiable pastor friend of mine any day of the week. James must have held his elders in the same high esteem with which I hold mine. But whether it's a pastor or an elder who prays, you need to handle verse 15 very, very carefully. Verse 15, the prayer of the faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise them up and anyone who has committed sins will be forgiven. There are those who believe that physical healing is a matter of faith alone. And if one's health declines or if they die, then it's simply a, lack of a, a matter of a lack of faith. Now, that's not what Scripture tells us. That's not what we need to believe, and we hurt people. We hurt people when we do that. My friends, God is going to raise us up. Of this, we are certain. We have a God of the resurrection. All who believe in him will never die. But whether he's going to raise us up from a hospital bed or from a cold, dark grave is something that rests in God's hands alone. The promise of the resurrection is this. Whether we live or whether we die, we belong to God who is always faithful. And when that resurrection comes, whatever that is going to look like, we will find ourselves judged and still, and still, this is the good news, we are going to be forgiven by Christ himself. So be very, very careful with verse 15. Therefore, verse 16 says, confess your sins to one another, pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. He goes on to talk about Elijah. Elijah wasn't a pastor. Elijah wasn't a pastor. He didn't have this great big formal theological education. He's a guy that prayed, and when he prayed, there was no rain for three and a half years, and then all of a sudden he prays again, and the rains came down. Do not underestimate the prayers of the righteous, even if they don't have REV in front of their name. Throughout this letter, James has been trying really hard to foster this community of trust and accountability, and he envisions, get ready for this practice, he envisions a place where people in, are encouraged to confess their sins to one another. Now, this is how the practice of confession developed in the church. And culturally, we Protestants tend to think that confession is the sole responsibility of the Catholics, right? Because they, they go and they do confessional. And so we seem to think that they must be the only sinners because they've got confession. But the truth is that the church, the church, the way that James envisions it, is a church that trusts each other enough to call one another to confession both corporately and individually. So this is why in, in this service, you'll hear me oftentimes when I do the closing prayer at the end of my sermon, I will talk about something that we need to think about forgiveness for, that we need to ask 
for forgiveness for. But if we went full-blown James, do you know what that would look like for the church? We'd have an official time of forgiveness, of, of confession and forgiveness, and I, I would stand here, and, and you'd all be right where you are, and we would just go around the room, and everybody could, could just confess their sins. We might try that next week. Yes? Yeah? We're going to have a really good week this week. In the traditional service, it's actually a marked part of the service, but that's the reason. That's the reason that we do it. Because James believes that in a community of trust, that you need to have an honest accountability for those times when you sin. And it makes us uncomfortable and it makes us nervous. It's kind of like talking about money. Sin and money are, are right up there about things that people don't like to talk about in church. But it is part of who we are. And that's why sometimes, and this, this happens more than I'd probably like to admit, sometimes when I send out a pastoral care note, it is a note of apology. It is a note of confession. I'm, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that. I'm sorry I, I didn't see you. I'm sorry that I wasn't there. It's important. It's important to have authenticity and integrity in relationships. And in order to do that, there has to be confession. In the cases of both physical infirmity, <coughs> which are manifest in sickness, and in spiritual infirmity, which manifest in sins, James believes that our faithful solidarity and sharing are effective in remedying our weaknesses. This is, this is surely true in plain, common-sense ways. When we care for one another by paying attention to the symptoms of illness, by providing the resources for health, by guarding against irresistible temptations, by living up to others' high expectations of us. It always cracks me up when I go to a social gathering with, with friends um, who know that I'm a pastor. Who, these, are, these people that already know that I'm a pastor, they may not be here at the church. It's really funny because all of a sudden, all of their habits change, right? <laughs> all of their we, we can be We can be at a wine tasting party and nobody's gonna drink any wine. Because... <laughs> Because hope's there, right? <laughs> they know this. But, but if that helps, if, if that helps, if, if my presence being somewhere helps somebody to take accountability for their behavior, then that's not a bad thing. That's, that's not a bad thing. And so as the church, when we show up to each other's functions and activities, if it causes us to at least reflect on our behavior, might not completely change it, but at least reflect on it, that's not a bad thing. That's how James envisioned the church. But James also trusts that forces that are greater, that are greater than common sense, are going to support and amplify our well-being. So thus, in verse 19, James encourages his audience to strive to bring back a neighbor who wanders from the truth, which restoration will have positive effects not only for the Reformed sinner, but also apparently for those who restore the sinner to truth. The well is awesome at this. This is one of the things that we do best. It is the coolest thing in the world to meet somebody who has come into the well who says to me, I'm here because so-and-so brought me here. Not because Pastor Hope brought me here, not because Pastor Sung brought me here, but because somebody else in this room cared enough about me to go after me to bring me here. And it's not, it's not so much that they came to church as much as it is that somebody cared enough about them 
to introduce them to Jesus Christ again. That is a big deal. When I started this series, I explained that there's two people who respond, two ways that, that, that people respond to the book of James. Some people love it, and everybody else is totally intimidated by the scope and expectation of it. And James sets the bar very, very high for the church, which makes sense when you think about the church as being the outpost for the kingdom of God here on earth. We should want the church to reflect God's absolute very best. But rather than writing off this letter as unrealistic or impractical, it is so cool when the church experiments with the practices that James talks about. As James would say, such experiments make an occasion for faith to show its effects in our works and for our works to bring our faith to completion. Anyone who's ever made it to the end of an instruction manual, I don't really know about this firsthand because I never make it to the end, but anybody who ever makes it to the end of the instruction manual knows that there is joy to be found when you finally get something together. But unless all the pieces fit together exactly and work exactly the way they were intended, there's always going to be moments, even years later, of going back and, and trying to tweak it just, just a little bit more, of moving towards a more complete creation. That's the church. That's our church. We are a group of imperfect people who love a perfect God and one another enough to go back again and again and again and keep tweaking and keep changing and keep growing so that we keep moving forward together in joy. Let's pray together. Holy God, we, we confess that um, there's a lot going on in the book of James, and it is overwhelming, and there are times when we start putting it together and just get frustrated and give up. But forgive us. Forgive us for not realizing that you are patient, that you are merciful, that you are asking us to keep walking towards you no matter how wobbly our steps may be. Help us to be a community that cares about one another, that holds each other accountable, that loves each other enough to go forward in faith together. In your name we pray. Amen.